0: You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast, bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers.
1: Margaret Wise
2: Sherry Brooks. Tina Kamal.
1: Matthew Quick. J.T. Ellison. Walt D. Williams. Brad Thor Corey. Dr. O. Renzen. Robin Ma. Ernest Klein Jim Butcher. Sherilyn
0: Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for
1: archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Tara Moss on the show with me today. She has a phenomenal new book that's out uh, finally in the States. It's called The War Widow, and uh, we are super excited to, uh, to bring this book to you today. This is a must-have going into the new year. You know, we're only a couple of days away from finally breaking through to 2021 and and all the hopes and dreams that I think we all have stacked on on a new year it feels like new year is uh it has more weight to it this year like there's a lot of hoping and praying about uh, what 2021 will bring and you need to have this book with you as you cross over into 2021 The War Widow thank you for joining me today Tara
2: Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Hank. And yes, bring on 2021, I say. We're just about there. But hanging on, tooth and nail.
1: I know, I know. Well, Tara, we begin each show with the same question. And before we can get into all the great conversation I know we're gonna have, we have to broach this question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller?
2: That's a great question. Um for me, it's a pretty vivid memory. It was actually Stephen King who made me want to write. Uh, I was a 10 years old. I know this because I um, had loose-leaf binders where I would write Stephen King-style novelettes for my classmates in high school and elementary school. Actually, it would have been elementary school back then. Um, and I was at Torquay Elementary, 10 years old, and writing Stephen King-style uh, little novelettes. And they were choose your own adventure style. So my friends would pick what would happen next, you know, if the the demon car would come after them, or if the creature you know, <laughs> in the closet would come out or whatever it was come out from under the bed or from the from the crypt. And um that was my very first, very vivid memory of uh, wanting to be a storyteller. And Stephen King for me at that time, you know, it was the 80s and there were uh, a lot of his most sort of classic books coming out at that time and movies coming out as well. So there was a lot of presence there um, to do with his work. And because I was 10, I wasn't allowed to read it. So that just made it all the more appealing. So I found ways. And um, <laughs> that, is, that that's the beginning for me. It was a mixture of excitement and taboo of reading something i wasn't supposed to be reading yet and um scaring my friends and kind of exploring these ideas
1: 10 years old that that is a a, a fascinating age uh, to be exploring stephen king novels and you know i i ask people all the time what it is about these types of books whether whether we write these sorts of stories or uh we're just lovers of these sorts of stories um but horror writers are, are some of the nicest, kindest people that you can possibly meet, and I, I think it's hilarious that you know that, that they write these sorts of stories uh, that creep us all out, and they're just sweet, gentle people for the most part. Um, a, as a youngster, was it just the 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 shock and taboo of it, or um, was there something uh calling to you in these types of stories?
2: Yeah, I've always been uh, someone who had a kind of calling to the taboo and the hidden, the things in the shadows. I've mostly explored that through crime fiction, but it was Stephen King in horror fiction, as well as some you know, classic like H.P. Lovecraft, some more speculative fiction that got me initially interested in storytelling. Um, I just found that as I became a professional writer in my 20s, uh, that... By then, I wanted to base a lot more of the spookiness on the things that I knew existed in the world rather than the mysterious. So um, I do have a a series, a Pandora English series, which is Paranormal, where I explore some of that paranormal aspect. Um, and again, that's aimed sort of a more young adult audience. But most of my novels, most of my work, I'm known for these um, thrillers or historical crime fiction where I'm exploring You know, what we know about the darkest aspects of human nature, um, the sort of stuff that um, is historically grounded or grounded in research. And I think I've taken some of the lessons that I first learned as a 10 year old in terms of storytelling and suspense and kind of making you making you think and and sort of check over your shoulder, you know, I've taken that and brought that into the, the world of noir and, and hard-boiled and these different aspects are slightly more grounded in, um, in experiences.
1: There is something to be said about tackling these issues that are uh, dark and uh, scare us to our core, uh, but tackling them from the comfort of our reading chair or you know that our bedside table, uh, you know where we do our reading at night. Um, th- there is something, and and I love that that you're tackling uh, uh, some of these topics and situations uh, from the hard boiled uh, or or noir uh, mystery sort of genre. Um, what do you feel like that the genres that that you um, love and embody? Um, what do you feel like that they open? Uh, what what possibilities do they open for you, knowing that you are treading in those waters?
2: Hmm. Uh, the crime genre broadly, but more specifically for me, the the noir and hard boiled tradition, I think, really gives us a wonderful opportunity to explore social justice issues, issues of of, of violence and society. Um, issues of inequality, whether it's gender inequality, racial inequality, whether it's ableism or homophobia, all of this stuff plays into, you know, the criminal justice system, um, you know, criminality and and murder, whether it's domestic or otherwise. Uh, I tend not to be sort of the domestic teacup mystery writer. My books have a lot more action um sometimes violent sometimes less uh, graphically so but there's always an element of of action um so whilst i absolutely love the you know the amateur detectives that sit in the sit in their parlor and deduct so brilliantly and i i have enjoyed a lot of those novels over the years my writing naturally tends towards uh, something more action-based where the qualities of the main characters are both cerebral but also physical you know um with billy walker who's the central character of the war widow uh, which is set in 1946 you have a woman who beautifully sort of marries if you will the traditionally masculine and feminine elements of people of that time so she's got a touch of the philip marlowes about her in that um she's really a great observer of society and she is uh, a private investigator. She's she doesn't mind going down those dark alleys, and she has a slight bit of cynicism. But on the other hand, she has the feminine qualities of the time as well, or what was thought of as traditionally feminine qualities. She's very stylish. Um she sews her own clothes, which she needed to do in the 1940s, and she wears her fighting red lipstick, which was a real lipstick from the brand Tussie at the time. And so she's this wonderful kind of mixture of qualities that. Give her authenticity to the 1940s and the resilient women of that time. Also, make sure you know she's still getting her hands dirty and she's still getting her stockings torn, and which uh, she gets very cross about because they were very expensive at the time. Um, but it, it does it grounds her in the 1940s, but it also means that she's you know pretty adept dealing with thugs in a back alley, and that's the type of uh, scene and type of novel that I like to write.
1: Tara, I have to ask you, um, in, in, in reading your, your bio, um, I know that you have dual Canadian and Australian, um, citizenship and you have a fantastic and fascinating accent, um, <laughs> where it it sort of dips in and out of these, uh, interesting mixes. Uh, tell me a little bit of, about your background, if you will, and I'd love to, I'd love- and how a sense of place um mm. sinks in and, and kind of soaks into uh our, our writing whether it be the characters or the settings or or what have you but how do you feel like your personal background affects the way you write and the kinds of stories that you tell
2: Excellent question um in the war widow i think that sydney australia is is sort of one of the characters in fact uh, 99% of the locations described in the book are real, authentic locations that existed at the time and can be visited now. Even if they're um, derelict and unsafe to walk through, they technically exist still today. So I, I have a an aspiration to do a Billy Walker walking tour of Sydney one day. Um, but in terms of my own personal background. I've dedicated this book to my Oma and Opa uh, because I grew up on their stories of World War II. They um, were born in Holland, where my mother was born as well. And of course, when the Nazis occupied that region, uh, they took a lot of people away. But for them, they took uh, my Opa because he was considered an able-bodied man who could you know, contribute to the German war machine. So he was put into slave labor at a munitions factory in Berlin. And my oh my, used to bravely cycle to visit him. She had two young children with him at the time, including my mom. And she would cycle across Holland to Berlin, smuggling flour and sugar in the hollows of her bicycle to give him these ingredients to bribe the foreman uh, with bread because he was a baker by trade. So he'd bake. Can you imagine baking? bread in these munitions ovens in this Nazi munitions factory, and uh, and he used that to get a day pass and escape the Nazis. And as soon as they were able to, once they were reunited, as soon as they were able to, they wanted to immigrate and they came to Canada. And as the story goes, uh, the boat left one day for Canada and the next morning was leaving for Australia. And they were going to get on either, and the one just left before the other. so they ended up in Canada, and hence I was born here. so those those types of um, stories of our ancestors and those who came before us are fascinating to me, and I wanted, I guess, to embody that resilience of ordinary people in the in the war widow, the people who you know weren't necessarily generals and at the, the in the corridors of power when all of this was taking place, but people who we're resilient and dealing with it in their own ways. And um, yeah, it means that I've kind of got I've got a hand in a, a kind of an international feeling of, of exactly where I belong. Canadian born. I've lived in Australia quite a bit. I set this book in Australia. Um, both places are home in a way. Um, but then so is the US. So is Spain. You know, I've, I've been fortunate to travel quite a bit and to write about a lot of these people, these places in my book.
1: I love it. Um, I want to get back to um, the idea of historical fiction and and where the new book takes place. But for just a minute, um, in in looking over your uh, your back catalog, um, tell me about the Pandora English uh, series that um, in in looking at your books, these really jump out. Um, What was the idea behind these stories and and what were you uh, trying to do here?
2: Well, with um, with all of my books, they're really part of what is now a 21 year project of centering women and girls' stories and experiences in fiction and nonfiction. Um, the War Widow is my 13th book. The Cobra Queen also came out this year. Uh, the Cobra Queen is my fourth Pandora English book. Um, so it's part of uh, a series that, as I mentioned, Paranormal, it's set in an alternate New York in a suburb called Spectre, uh, which is on Manhattan Island and can't be found on maps. And it really, in, um, it, it brings together, rather than being historical, it does bring together a lot of my research into ancient mythology and folklore and um, beliefs from the to do with the shadows and the taboo and and those other other elements that I guess I've always been fascinated by, uh, and it's wrapped together really with this wonderful young female protagonist who is, you know, um, everyone you'd want to be if she is the chosen one. She's um, she's very forthright and and wonderful and surrounded by an eclectic cast of uh, go- goodies and baddies and everything in between. But it's a wonderful way that Cobra Queen's a wonderful way of exploring, particularly um Egyptian um ancient mythology. and, uh, yes, you see, there's a lot of gods and goddesses in that series, particularly with emphasis on the goddesses, I have to say, <laughs> the ones we don't hear as much about
1: you just never know where those Stephen King influences will will rear their heads, do you?
2: indeed, indeed. And again, it's um very research dedicated. i I just any. Any excuse to research is, is you know, I can't help myself. I go down the rabbit hole of research all the time. And with the War Widow, I'm using that very directly. I'm I'm being very careful about like even the colors of the tiles on the floor of the building on that street at that time, you know, really very specific details. I remember spending a couple of days trying to confirm whether Billy Walker could have a second telephone in her flat or apartment in Sydney at that time, because that was rare or whether the, the towel racks could be heated. You know, it's these little details. <laughs> I think, but I had to actually check, could she have a pink telephone? You know, were they even available at the time? You know, that, that sort of thing that you might make assumptions about from watching Hollywood films. But I, I don't want to get my research from film and what's already been made before. I want to go right to the source. And with Pandora English, instead of Billy Walker, you know, she's dealing in a world where I can make a lot more up but i'm again bringing research to the fore by just exploring all of these past beliefs and and in some cases current beliefs to do with um the the mystery and spirit world to do with folklore and
1: mythology love it i love the the melding of uh of past beliefs and and bringing them into the modern era and and letting uh, seeing what'll happen I, I i love that so much Um, With your new book, The War Widow, um, we've talked a lot over the last few years about historical fiction and this time period of World War II in specific. And there's been lots and lots of great books that have come out um, over the last few years dealing with the World War II era and um, a, a lot of discussion about why it is we as a reading population are... Uh, fascinated with these types of stories set in this time and uh, you know there's a lot to be said about you know the 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 farther we get away from an historical event the the more we lose of that historical event and the, the more of the individual characters that we lose uh because there there's just yeah, the further you get away from something the more it gets reduced to to just bullet points because you just, we, we can't just go into all of the details about everything that ever happened. So it's just a natural thing to happen, and, and I personally think that's one reason that we love fiction around this time, because we don't want to lose these stories. We don't want to lose the heroes and heroines that, that did such fascinating and, you know, uh, world-changing things. Um, so first off, um, the War Widow takes place just after the war. Um, why did you choose to set this just after the war? And was there a particular um, sort of feeling that you were uh, looking for this this post war? Um, it's a different world after World War II. Where was there was there a specific reason for setting this just after the war?
2: Yes, there there was. I really wanted to focus on the long shadow of war, to focus on the fact that when war is finished, when victory is declared, it's it's actually not over. Um, and and that's in fact one of the, the lines from this book is that, you know, the, the war may be over, but her battle continues, her battle's just begun. And that was true for so many ordinary people. Their lives have been utterly changed. Um, you know, their physical bodies may have been changed through injury. Their minds were changed. A lot of people had shell shock or PTSD. Um, you know, financially and in terms of being able to access material goods, people's lives were completely changed. Um, so, yeah, there was victory, and that meant one particular impending kind of uh, a sense of destruction was was relieved a little bit. But there was still this massive aftermath, and I believe that aftermath is intergenerational. It it continues, um, you know, generation after generation, there's still an impact. Uh, one of the storylines in this book has to do with a Jewish German family and also has to do with what's, you know, commonly called Nazi loot or war loot, uh, the the items, material goods and possessions that were taken from prisoners of war, particularly Jewish people during world war II and others who were um, considered political opponents or political prisoners. Um, and you know, that, that change of circumstances for those people, like many of them never got those things back. They lost a huge number of family members, but they also lost, you know, their homes, their sense of place, their ability to live where their ancestors had lived their connection, uh, to their cultures. All of these things were, um, altered in ways that couldn't be just fixed or just didn't disappear overnight. And I wanted to really, I guess, look at that and look at the impacts on ordinary people, everyday people, and look at the resilience of those people. You know, it's dedicated to my Oma Opa, but it's not about, you know, her journey on the bicycle with the, with smuggled ingredients. It's about kind of what people like them did once You know, once the the dust had settled and they were in a new country with a new, you know, a new outlook. For Billy, she's returned to Australia after working as a journalist and war reporter in Europe. And her, you know, her sense of world has completely changed. Her place in it has changed. She's lost her father, who was a private investigator, and she reopens his investigation agency. Um, But she's also lost her husband, who, you know, she had a wartime wedding And, you know, he's missing, presumed dead, and her life is completely altered. And she's one of those resilient, you know, women who survived that time by kind of, you know, finding an inner strength and and going forward into the unknown. And she has these extraordinary experiences as a result, which are all, you know, unfold in the book. But yeah, I really wanted to set in the post-war period to look at the aftermath of war and how that impacts regular people.
1: Billy is uh, what we might describe as a, a firecracker of, <laughs> uh, of a protagonist. Um, did did Billy come to you fully formed or did she, did you discover her in layers?
2: She came to me fully formed. A lot of the other characters developed and changed, um, like Sam Baker, her assistant, or like her, her mother and, and ladies' maid, um, Ella and Alma, they she's just surrounded by these wonderful characters in the war widow but billy walker herself was quite fully formed by the time i put pen to page or in my case literally you know fingertip to <laughs> to keypad uh, sounds a bit less romantic but yes um, i i was i heard her voice in my head and any time there's dialogue with her it just it just blows um, some of the other characters started to come together quite quickly as well. So the banter between Billy and her mother, who's, um, you know, she's a baroness uh, who's lost most of her fortune, um, comes from Holland as well. Like my family lineage, uh, although I have no baronesses in the family, <laughs> I should mention, but she's a wonderful, um, kind of examination of how, of how people's fortunes changed and how they had to be very resilient and change completely the way that they were uh, living their day to day lives. So the banter between Billy and her mother, Ella, is just wonderful. Um, And I think the banter between Billy and Sam as the book um, progresses is wonderful as well. Uh, Sam's a disabled vet. He has an injury to his hand, and this is perhaps part of the reason why he's working as a second to a woman and a a private investigator, because that was unusual for the time. Um, but he makes a yeah wonderful assistant or secretary and they make an excellent team together. Um, so I kind of yeah fell in love with all the characters as I went, but Billy was well and truly, you know, formed and ready and raring to go and had a lot to say from
1: page one. Um, the, the, the idea for this novel, did it come to you? um uh, it, as as uh, a completed story as it were uh or did billy just walk onto the scene and then things started happening do you understand i'm asking
2: i do and i can visualize it i can see her in her oxford shoes and her um, shirtwaisted dress walking on the scene and that's exactly how it uh, played out for me um I wish the story was fully formed. That might make me a faster writer. Um, <laughs> but I have to admit, after you know many years at this, um, that never seems to be the way it is. Even if I have an idea of the plot, it always changes and morphs during the process of writing. Often significantly changes. So I tend to start with the characters and the sense of bringing characters, sometimes extreme characters together and exploring what would happen if their lives intersected. And with Billy, it was just kind of like putting her in Sydney and letting her go. Like, where is this going to, you know, how's this going to mm-hmm. unfold? Um, there are elements of the plot that I knew I wanted to include and explore, but actually how it unfolds was a process of discovery for me during the writing.
1: Love that. Um, you mentioned earlier your love of of research and getting to the primary sources. You know, could Billy have a pink telephone? Could she have more than one telephone in, in her flat? And And things like that, that you obviously were researching uh, during the writing of the book when you would come to something. Um, Mm -hmm. But how much research goes into the pre-writing or um, how immersed do you need to put yourself into the situation before you can actually start drafting?
2: I tend to throw myself in pretty deep, I'll be honest. Hank. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wear a lot of 1940s clothes. I sewed some of the outfits Billy wears. I had a material connection with her world and experiences. Um, I collect 1940s kind of paraphernalia and documentation whenever I can find it. Often it's, you know, very sadly collecting dust in the back of a a charity shop somewhere or um, a secondhand shop. And I'm one of those people who just has to adopt it and kind of like dust it off and give it give it a home somewhere. So, yeah, I connect very much with the material of the time as well as the stories of the time, reading um, personal stories, particularly from women because they tend to be less often written. In fact, if you read about women from the period, a lot of the books are self-published. And that's been very much the case until, say, the last 10 years. We've started to see that switch a little bit with more film and um, more books kind of coming out about the great women spies of the period and, you know, heroines from World War II. Um, the research for this book, I mean, the whole, the whole book took over two years for me to write in part because of that research component. There was always something else, you know, there was always something else to check or something else to discover as I went um even aspects of daking house which is where billy has her private investigation um office for her business it's a real place that exists that i was able to you know go in and tour and speak to the owners of the business that's there at the moment it's a it's a ywca and i was able to go in and there's like a corner room there we call the billy walker room because it's where the balcony the real balcony exists where she's always out there smoking um smoking one of her cigarettes and kind of contemplating a case that balcony really exists in Sydney. So you can go downtown Sydney and look up and see, you know, the Billy Walker balcony and the Billy Walker room. There, there's so much research that you can do. And I probably over research to be honest. Um, and I think it's a real challenge for historical because, if you're someone like me, who's such a perfectionist with this, I still get stuff wrong all the time. It's not perfect, but I'm a perfectionist by nature, so I try. It means that I'll start writing a scene, and if I don't know something, it's like it can stump me and mean that it, it, you know, I'm like just don't worry about the color of the wallpaper right now. <laughs> just keep going, <laughs> characters. But I'll have these notes everywhere through the manuscript about you know check this, check that, make sure that that saying was around already in 1946 and it didn't come from the seventies or eighties or something. I need to check all this stuff to be satisfied. And that's time consuming.
1: I I love that you um, immerse yourself in the, um, the the things of the time, whether it be wardrobe or uh, trinkets or or things like that. I, um, I do a bit of that myself. I, I love having a physical touchstone, something that I can, sometimes it may be um an item that that you can describe in your writing and by holding it in your hand you, you can you know come up with the best descriptions that you know little details but there's there's something ephemeral about holding um a, an item from another time uh and it, it's something that you can't quite put your finger on but it it's inspiration, if nothing else. Um, and even if that item doesn't make its way into your manuscript, there's there's something grounding about it, isn't there?
2: Look, there is. And you know, if this was Pandora English, you'd probably say there was a psychic imprint of some right on the item. Um, I'm not sure what I believe. I just leave that open. But there's definitely something there. There's something very special about having the responsibility of holding these items that have had significance to someone in the past and just honoring them and giving them, you know, giving them a place to be and not forgetting about them and not forgetting these histories. Um, Going back to what you mentioned earlier, World War II had such a huge impact on the world, on so many people. And for most of us, our family histories have, you know, stories from this time. And to honor that by remembering Um, by contemplating this time, I think, I think does have value. And we can do that through a variety of different ways. Storytelling is a wonderful way, but even yet honoring those objects, instead of saying, I'm just going to take it down to the junk shop or throw them out. They don't mean anything to me anymore. It's just kind of thinking about where they come from and what those people went through. Um, There's a beautiful bracelet that I have, which was made of coins and um, an aviation um, badge which was made by a pilot for his his loved one Um, all all handmade you know and it's just made of these coins and I have this and I have no idea who I know that it comes from the 1940s I know it was a a sort of common at the time for for these guys to take what materials they had and put something together and mail it to their you know fiance's or their loved ones and the people that they missed. One of these has, you know, come into my life and lost its connection with its original owner's, you know, line of family. And I just think it's important to kind of honor that, recognize what it is and how much care was put into creating this object. It's a love trinket um, made of whatever materials that man in the field was able to get hold of. And it's just I find it incredibly moving. I've got goosebumps just talking about it things like that or the... um, Trinkets like uh, lighters that are um, have inscriptions on them from concentration camps, you know, those types of items are just like there's something very, very strong about them, very moving about them. And, um, you know, if you do come across one, I think it's important to to honor it and, and to sort of take a moment to recognize what it is and and what went into the making of it in that, you know, that experience.
1: And, and I hope that uh, that books like *The War Widow* will be a sort of bridge for people to uh, to link us back to those times, and maybe to link us to some of these items that that we personally don't get a chance to interact with, but we we know that you have, and that loving care is translated to the book. Uh, the book *The War Widow* is available everywhere now um, in Kindle edition, audiobook edition, hardcover. Uh, we're going to put links to all those places in the show notes of this episode. Uh, tara, this has been so much fun uh, chatting. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you do?
2: Oh, thank you, Hank. Yes, please look me up and, and drop me a line. Um, I'm at taramos.com. As that's my website. And I'm also on Instagram, Author, And on Twitter at tara underscore Moss. I couldn't get taramos. Just this one word. Someone else. <laughs> Someone else gets a lot of my mail on Twitter, but yeah, you'll find me online and I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the book, or even if you want to share with me any of the family stories and histories that you have from this period, I would love to hear them.
1: Excellent. We'll put links to all those places in the show notes to make it easy for people to find you. Uh, Tara, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show.
2: Thanks. It's an honor, Hank. Take care.
0: A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people, only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target, make the hit, move on, until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator, the taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of The Crime Beat and Alex Vane Media Thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time, author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense Terry Wells Brown says. Grab this book from Craig Martell,
1: The Operator.
0: Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of both barrels publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel, both com.